Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, everybody. My name is Sreek Van Milipali. I'm an assistant professor of medicine and a cardiologist at Duke University Medical Center. Um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, Therapies on the horizon for uh, resistant hypertension. I have two distinguished uh, guests with me today. Uh, Dr. Ferdinand, would you mind introducing yourself, sir? Hi, I'm Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand, Professor of Medicine, Gerald S. Barrison, Endowed Chair of Preventive Cardiology at Tulane in New Orleans, Louisiana. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ferdinand. And Dr. Shaw, would you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Nishant Shah. I'm an assistant professor of medicine here at, at uh, Duke University Medical Center. I work in cardiometabolic prevention. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Great. Thank you both for being here. I wanted to start off our conversation, Dr. Ferdinand, uh, with you. Where do you see the real holes are right now in terms of available therapies for patients with true resistant hypertension? Well, first of all, resistant hypertension is anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the population. These are persons on three or more medicines, one of which would be a diuretic at maximum tolerated doses, don't have their blood pressures controlled to the new goal of less than 130 over 80. So it's a growing problem as the population ages. The medicines we have are really excellent if you're using a long-acting thiazide-type diuretic calcium blocker and a RAS-blocking agent, then you add a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist. That goes a long way. But still, there are other classes of agents that are looking at different ways of approaching that. We know endothelin plays a part of that. There's an endothelin receptor antagonist that's on the works. There's some central RAS agents, one called Ferivastat that works in the brain. And even the SGLT2 inhibitors, which were first approved for diabetes, and we now know are cardiovascular medicines, may have a part in resistant hypertension. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Shaw, um, you know, Dr. Ferdinand talked a little bit about the endothelial receptor uh, antagonists. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that and what we might expect here in the next few months to year uh, in developments in those areas? Yes, absolutely. And it's a great question and a really exciting area of research. Um, as Dr. Ferdinand mentioned, you know, there's so many classes of drugs that we have available at the moment. Um, and we, we, you know, we know that you know, they work well when used uh, together with different mechanisms of action. However, as Dr. Fernand mentioned, resistant hypertension, even refractory hypertension is still very prevalent. And so um, looking exactly at the endothelium is a, a very exciting area. We've seen endothelium receptor antagonists work really well in other settings uh, in terms of dropping um, uh pressures in the pulmonary vasculature, for instance, uh, in the heart failure space. Um, and so Knowing that data, knowing how how much it's worked before, we're hoping to help you know see this have a big impact in the blood pressure space in general. Um, the endothelial receptor antagonists work along uh, the psych uh, the different cyclooxygenase pathways as well as well as nitric oxide, and so there's a lot of downstream effects of these therapies that should be very helpful. Perfect, thank you. So you know. Given that this is a new mechanism of action, obviously there's uh, ongoing clinical trials here. We don't actually have an indication yet for an endothelial receptor antagonist for 
for um, resistant hypertension. So, you know, I think we want to focus in a little bit here on what might be coming in the, in the future. So, um, obviously, there's uh, the precision trial that's ongoing right now with aprocetentin. Uh, Dr. Ferdinand, can you talk a little bit about what the timing might be where we might expect those uh, results? Uh, is that later 2022, something like that? Well, we really never know when the FDA is going to approve aprocetentin, but the highline results, which means this is not peer-reviewed, it's not been finalized, suggests that it will reduce blood pressure in those patients with true resistant hypertension without really any bad side effects. Previously, we had the difficulty with endothelin receptor antagonists for fluid retention, but this one blocking ETA and B doesn't appear to have that problem. So don't know, but I would suggest perhaps by the end of 2022, we may hear the final results and maybe even FDA approval this year. Yeah, that would be, I think, really exciting given, you know, the difficulty, despite having multiple drugs, as you mentioned, and mineral corticoids uh, for some patients. You know, I also want to spend a few minutes and talk a little bit um, about other therapies. So we, we've mentioned a couple of drug therapies. What about device therapies on the horizon? Dr. Shaw, any, any thoughts there, especially uh, around renal denervation? Absolutely. Um, you know, renal denervation is uh, evolving. Um, we've had a lot of um, sham uh, controlled randomized trials um, just to see, it, you know, what the impact is. And there have certainly been mixed results, to, to say the least. And, um, you know, but I, but I do think this is, a you know, an area that needs more exploration and, and, and evolution. And just like all device therapies, you know, over or the history and cardiology. And so um, looking at, you know, technologies uh, to better denervate, um, how we do the ablations, um, things like that, I think will evolve. I, one of the limitations as well um, in uh, the, the early denervation trials has been um, the fact that many patients may have not been on medical therapies or it may have not been you know, appropriately um, increasing a stepwise approach to medical therapy. We know that in defer hypertension, they did use that approach um, and did see a little bit longer term benefit. But we also don't know what the outcomes are like. And so these are questions that hopefully trials will be able to provide us in the denervation space to see if there is truly a benefit. Um, in terms of other devices, you know, the baroreflex um, uh, device therapies are also something that um, is evolving. Um, we've not seen um, too much in the way of conclusive evidence just yet because it's quite new, but that is something else uh, that we should look for um, where we look at devices that essentially work on our carotid baroreflexes to help reduce blood pressure. So uh, definitely keep a lookout for that. Dr. Ferdinand, I'm, uh, you know, ACC this past year, um, spiral on med, which has been going on for quite some time, actually, uh, presented results from their first uh, about 80 or 100 patients. And, and I think we're expecting the sort of rest of the couple hundred patients later on this year. You know, Dr. Shaw mentioned this long evolution, especially with renal denervation going back, all, you know, all the way to simplicity three hypertension. How do you think about renal denervation given some of the failings that have happened several years back and now more promising data that, that seems to be coming forth? Well, hypertension is perhaps the most potent and prevalent cardiovascular risk factor. It's difficult to control in many patients. And the new devices appear to be better than the simple uh, unipolar device that was used in Simplicity 3. Another unknown fact about Simplicity 3 is that the African-American cohort actually did better on the placebo because they started taking their medicine. So here's the bottom line. 
make sure the patients are taking conventional medicines. There's no magic bullet such that renal denervation is going to overcome non-adherence. The outcomes with the spiral catheter, which is a, an improvement from the original renopolar catheter, may actually suggest that this will be a safe and effective therapy, but it won't obliterate the need to take medicine and take them appropriately. I think that's a really key uh, point there, and it, it sort of brings me to, to the question I want to conclude with, which is, if let's say we fast forward a year from now, and we have at least one endothelin receptor antagonist that's been approved for resistant hypertension with some efficacy there, and one or perhaps even multiple um, device-based therapies for resistant hypertension, where does all this fit? Like if I'm a a simple cardiologist or a primary care doctor, and I've got my at least five or six other medications um, that I might use in these patients, and now I've got these devices and I've got endothelial receptor antagonists. What what do I do with all this, um, Doctor Shaw? You want to start with that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, and it's a you know question we're seeing a lot of in so many different spaces in cardiology, lipids, diabetes, etc. And so, what I would say, and, and I think this is the the, the art of medicine, right? Everything is very patient specific and we need to identify the right patient that these therapies will help. Um, I think it adds more tools uh, in our pocket um, to be able to help uh, patients, particularly those that are, you know, adherent, are using the lifestyle modifications we talk about, don't have any other secondary causes of hypertension, aren't on any medicines that could be causing their hypertension. Um, people, you know, we know that um, there's a subset of patients with resistant hypertension, uh, just based on genetics, um, that tend to just mount high blood pressures. And maybe these therapies are better for those people. And so I think um, this certainly fits, um, but we do need to be very uh, directed at the patient-specific needs. Dr. Fernand, your thoughts on that, and, and especially how we integrate that with uh, hypertension specialists? I certainly agree with the comments. I think the, fo- the future potential is going to be to recognize the potent and prevalent risk factor that hypertension really is. We hear a lot about interventions and a lot about lipids. Hypertension is right up there. The benefit will be using the conventional medicines and ensuring adherence, using text messaging and other novel means, including self-monitored blood pressure, to communicate with the patient and share decision-making. Once you've done all the right things, I think the addition of endothelium receptor antagonists and even in some cases renal denervation will greatly lower those patients who have resistant hypertension, true resistant hypertension, taking their medicines, trying to control the blood pressure, and cannot effectively get the blood pressure less than 130 over 80. Well, thank you both. Really a great discussion today um, about some of the new therapies on the horizon for resistant hypertension and really just the the beginning of an exciting time uh, for the treatment and control of hypertension. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.